So if you have been tracking with us through this series or just know the story of Jonah, you know that the first three chapters are filled with unexpected and unexplained plot twists. Like if you're reading it for the first time and you don't already know the story, I mean, even the opening premise that God gives a prophet a job and the prophet says, no, I'm going to go the other way. I mean, that's surprising. That's unexpected. You don't think that the prophets really have that option. Uh, and then it's also surprising that when God meets him and the storm comes up, the, the experienced sailors are afraid for their life, and Jonah's doing what? He's sleeping in the bottom of the, of the ship. That's, that's not expected. Um, and then that Jonah says, hey, you can calm the storm by throwing me overboard. Also, that's, that's not what anybody would have expected in the story, but you would think, well, that's kind of, you know, the end of it for Jonah. He's thrown overboard, but nope, he's swallowed by a big fish. Didn't see that coming, unless you did see it coming. But if, if you were reading this for the first time, man, that's unexpected and, and unexplained, right? Um, it's just, we're just watching all of this happen and taking it in. Uh, and then he didn't get digested by the fish. Oh, no, he actually lived and prayed and repented. Uh, in the belly of the fish. And if you were here last week, uh, Mike uh, sort of pointed out that that's really the theme of this story is, is repentance. Uh, not only Jonah repenting in chapter 2 uh, as he's in the belly of the fish, but then the fish didn't digest him, spit him out on the shore uh, right in front of Nineveh. He goes into the city, and this notoriously wicked city didn't kill the prophet who came to preach to them uh, that they would be destroyed if they didn't repent. No, they actually repented again. Who would have thought? Who would have thought that this would happen? And yet we're just watching all of this happen in front of us. And we have the privilege uh, as we get to this final chapter of having some of these things explained for us. It's like, okay, we've seen all of this play out, and now the, the final chapter, uh, literally, of the story, uh, we get to, to go beneath the surface into Jonah's heart and mind and see what was really going on there. And so we're going to see a couple of things uh, about Jonah and about his response but more importantly, uh, the last verses of this book, we get to see the mind and heart of God. And that's really what this book is about. It's about the compassion of God. And we have the opportunity to see him explain it to us, explain his own compassion. And so that's good stuff, and so we're going to move right to it. Um, we're going to pick up the story at the end of Jonah chapter 3, uh, which is the, the conclusion of the matter after Jonah had preached the gospel to the city of Nineveh. And it says, when God saw what they did, that is, they fasted, they repented, they mourned over their sin, when, he, when God saw what they did and, and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. And then verse 1 of chapter 4 begins. Again, the next sort of unexpected plot twist. But to Jonah... This seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Now again, if you didn't see this coming, that's quite an unexpected response. Jonah's a missionary. He, he's a prophet of God. I mean, his whole job is to preach the truth and to call people to repentance. And for so many of the prophets in Israel's history, when they did their job, they were tortured or persecuted or killed. 
But Jonah goes, and he has this amazing success. The whole city, from the king right on down to the cattle, repent, and God saves this city. This is the greatest accomplishment in Jonah's lifetime. And you think he would be thrilled, excited, praising God, but no, he's so angry he wants to die. So what's happening there? What's going on with Jonah that he would respond in this way? Well, we see a couple of things. Uh, and it's interesting, uh, we get a window into the early conversation that he had with God. He says, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? You sort of see this this conversation between God and Jonah when God first came to him with this assignment. And Jonah says, you're going you're gonna to offer repentance and, and compassion to the people of Nineveh. They don't deserve it, and I'm not going to go and do that. Isn't this what I told you, Lord? You did exactly what I knew you would do, because I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love. But Jonah just could not stand it. And what's really interesting Uh, is the language that he uses to describe God, the gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. This is not the first time that this set of phrases has shown up um, in the Bible. In fact, what he's doing is he's quoting God's words back to God Uh, because it was God who originally said this. Uh, At the top of the mountain when he was giving the Ten Commandments for the second time to Moses and the Israelites, Uh, God said this in Exodus chapter 34. Can we put that verse up on the screen? This is the Lord speaking, and he says, I am the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. This is God explaining to Moses his own character. And this phrase was taken up again and again and again throughout Israel's history. We see it several times in the Old Testament. Uh, When Nehemiah rebuilt the walls after they had come back to Jerusalem and it had been destroyed, the priests gathered everyone together for a worship service. And what did they sing? They said, God, the Lord who is gracious and compassionate, abounding in love, slow to anger, who relents from sending calamity. Just exactly what Jonah was saying. King David, again and again throughout the Psalms, sees this same set of uh, phrases about God's compassion. The prophet Joel, when he was calling the Israelites to repentance, he said, rend your heart and not your garments. Perhaps the God who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, will relent from his anger and show us mercy and compassion. So throughout Israel's history, we see them praying back to God, worshiping him because of his graciousness and his compassion. And it was at times of repentance when they, when they did this. Now what's ironic is that Jonah would use this same phrase not to worship God for his compassion, not to, not to express his own repentance to God and celebrate the compassion that was undeserved that came his way. Oh no, he's quoting this back to God to say, You shouldn't have compassion. These people don't deserve it. Even though they had repented, I'm so angry about this that I could die. Same words, same God, entirely different posture of the heart for Jonah than his fellow prophets, than his fellow countrymen. And what's especially ironic about that is the only other accomplishment we know about in the life of Jonah outside of what we find in the book of Jonah. We read about in 2 Kings 14 where we find out in just a few short sentences that Jonah was a prophet under King Jeroboam, one of the kings of Israel. Jeroboam was an evil king. He did not obey God's commands. 
presumably the people and Jonah included during that day, were not following after God. And yet, in the time of Jeroboam, God actually blessed Israel by expanding their territory and and sort of recovering some land that had been lost to the other nations and and restored it back to what it had been under King David. It was a great blessing that God gave to Israel, undeserved during a time of evil and wickedness where their hearts were far from God. And this was predicted, prophesied by Jonah. So God's great accomplishment through uh, an unworthy Jonah was to show compassion and grace to his people. And Jonah was the recipient of it. Though he had not repented, the people had not repented, the king had not repented, they did not deserve it in any way. And now he, this same undeserving prophet, recipient of God's compassion, is so angry he could die because God showed that same compassion to people who had actually repented. He's just angry about it. What's going on in the heart of Jonah? And it actually gets worse than that. If, if you look at the next phrase in verse 3, he says, Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Once again, this is not the first time this phrase has shown up in the Old Testament. There was another prophet who said this exact same thing, Lord, take away my life, and it was the prophet Elijah. But what's ironic there again, Elijah uttered this prophet this this word to God, this prayer to God, after he had called down fire from God on the altar, had slaughtered 450 pagan prophets, and then run over 120 miles for his life away from Queen Jezebel, who was out for his head. Said he went a day out into the desert, collapsed under a bush, and said, I've had enough. Lord, please take away my life. Now, Elijah was a hero. And and anybody who's run an ultramarathon probably wishes they were dead. You know, I, I've, got, I've got sympathy for that, right? You run over 100 miles, uh, you've got reason to crawl out to God and say, oh Lord, this is enough for me. Take away my life. But that was not Jonah's situation. And yet here he is sort of putting himself, uh, using, calling, recalling the same words of the heroic prophet Elijah. This is not a good look for Jonah that he's burning with anger to this degree that he just wants to die and and has this presumption to call out to God, I'd rather die than see your compassion be given to someone else. What is going on with Jonah? He has this sense of entitlement to God's compassion that he doesn't want to see given to someone else particularly someone outside of the nation of Israel, this pagan, wicked people of Nineveh. Now, to some, some extent, that's understandable, right? As we've seen throughout this series, the Ninevites, the Assyrians, were notoriously wicked, notoriously cruel. And so, yes, they, they weren't any more deserving of God's compassion than the Israelites were, except that they had believed God and God spared his judgment because they had repented uh, in this instance. And to be sure, years later, the judgment would come on Nineveh, but for now, they were spared, and Jonah just couldn't stand it. And lest we think that's just so incomprehensible, let's go beneath the surface a little bit in our own hearts and lives. One of the things that happens in the Hanbury household these days is that when someone comes home with the good cereal, like the name brand cereal, especially the ones that have the little dried strawberries in them. Whoever gets to that cereal first 
claims entitlement to the whole box of cereal. That's my cereal because I got to it first. And anybody who comes along after that wants a bowl of that cereal, oh man, they get apoplectic. They lose it. That's my cereal. It's my good stuff. It's my strawberry cereal. You don't get any of it. I'm entitled to that cereal. This happens with, with some regularity in the Hanbury household. And so it's easy for me to look at that and go, come on, guys, come on, guys, come on. You didn't buy that cereal. You didn't go to the store to get that cereal. That's not your cereal. You're not entitled to the whole box of cereal. You got siblings. They want some cereal too. Don't get all bent out of shape. Don't be so angry you want to die. Let somebody else have a bowl of compassion. Right? Right? But it's easy to pick on our kids too, isn't it? One of the, one of the fun parts about getting older is we, we learn all the new things that are wrong with us. And so several months ago, this is my pandemic gift, um, I learned that I have celiac disease, which means I can't eat gluten anymore. And I don't think it's cool or trendy to not eat gluten. I love gluten. It's my favorite food group. I love bread. I love anything with gluten in it. And so this has not been good news for me. And most gluten-free things aren't very good. But one thing that I've discovered that is good is the Costco cauliflower crust gluten-free pizza. Man, that stuff is great. And if you put enough garlic and other stuff on it, it tastes amazing. Uh, so in our house, you know, frozen pizza is like a food group. We have it all the time. And so nowadays when we have frozen pizza for dinner, there's everybody else's pizza and there's dad's pizza. And so, you know, several weeks ago we're eating and, and I walk away for a minute and I come back and guess what? Dad's pizza's gone. No more gluten-free pizza. It's only the regular, you know, gluten-make-dad's-stomach-blow-up pizza. And so I get mad. I'm like, who ate my pizza? That's my gluten-free pizza. You, you can have your Any of you can eat this pizza. I can't eat your pizza. Now you're eating my pizza. That's all I have. I'm entitled to my gluten-free pizza. Right? Right? I, I, I don't want to give away what is rightfully mine. And I just got a little bit angry because the gluten-free sandwich bread's no good, and that's all we got left. We experience this all the time, right? We feel entitled to something good. And we don't like it when somebody else gets some of it. We don't like it. And we live in a time right now, oh my goodness, where so many of us feel like the, the good things that we have become accustomed to, become uh, entitled to, seeing someone else receive some of those good things, man, that makes us mad. But we don't do what Jonah did, right? We're too sophisticated than that. You know, we, we, we just seethe. Or we vent to someone who thinks like we do. And we just burn with anger. We don't say things out loud, right? We don't, we don't, we don't do it in such an undignified manner like, like Jonah did. But have you, ever, have you ever had a moment where you were just so tired or exhausted or exasperated or just you've had enough and, and you kind of let your guard down? And you actually say what you're really thinking. And, and, and the moment that it comes out, you go, oh boy, did, did that come out? Like, did I say that out loud? I mean, that's a, that's a dangerous, vulnerable feeling, right? When, when you actually give words to that deep anger that you're feeling, that's a dangerous spot to be in. And incidentally, I think that's what's happening with Jonah. Like, I got to think that throughout most of his prophetic career, he had more of a filter than we're seeing right now. But he's just been put through the ringer. He's had enough. And we're just seeing what's really coming up from the inside, which is actually helpful for us because it gives us an opportunity to stop and go beneath the surface in our own lives as well and, and consider 
some of the ways that we have that same instinct to claim what is good, the compassion of God toward us shown in so many different ways, so many practical blessings, and just recognize that twinge of anger or jealousy, resentment, bitterness that comes when God gives something good to someone else that we think we are deserving of. Look at how God responds to Jonah. Look at how God responds to us. Verse 4 says, The Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Is it right for you to be angry? This is God asking Jonah. And once again, it's an unexpected response. God doesn't match Jonah's exasperation or match Jonah's tone or lash out at Jonah in the way that Jonah lashed out at him, in the way that I lash back out at my kids when they lash out at me. No, the wonderful counselor says, is it right for you to be angry? When I give my compassion to someone else, when I give the good cereal to somebody else, Is it right for you to be angry? And he just lets that question hang there. That's the first place for us to sort of stop and take stock of our own life. Is it right for us to be angry when we feel that same burning in our own spirit? And look at what God does to sort of continue taking Jonah on this journey beneath the surface. We pick up in verse 5. It says, now Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said again, it would be better for me to die than to live. Interesting um, response that God has uh, to Jonah. After raising this question, is it right for you to be angry? He brings this living parable, uh, this this situation to, to, to teach Jonah, sort of a little object lesson that he brings Jonah's way. Um, and it's interesting context of the story. So what, what's happening in verse 5, we think, um, is kind of a little explanatory excursus in the story where, God is, where, where the author is sort of taking us out and says, you know, when all, as all this was happening, Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city under this shelter. And of course, by this time, Jonah is convinced that God is not going to destroy Nineveh. Uh, And the message that he had given to Nineveh was, if you don't repent in 40 days, God is going to destroy you. And so presumably, he'd been sitting under this shelter for about 40 days, waiting to see what's God going to do. Are they going to repent? And, And because he's convinced that God is not going to destroy them, logic would tell you he's been sitting under this shelter for quite a while. And the shelter was probably some form of um, 
leafy branches that were sort of woven together and when the leaves were fresh, probably made some pretty decent shelter for Jonah. But if he'd been sitting under this for 40 days, those leaves had probably withered quite a lot, letting a whole lot of that heat and sun come through and it probably wasn't quite as good of a shelter as it was when he built it. And so it actually makes sense that God would raise up this new plant with fresh green broad leaves that would give Jonah much better shelter than he had been experiencing. And man, he was happy about that. And you can imagine, right? Here's an exasperated Jonah, wants to die, hated what just happened. He thought it was terribly wrong that what God did for Nineveh. And finally, something's going his way. Finally, something's going his way. The plant comes and it's like, okay. And then sure enough, next day, here comes this worm. But he loved that worm, right? He's chewing on that plant. The plant dies. And then it was worse than it ever was before. God sends this scorching, dramatic, big word, right? Um, Incidentally, everything in Jonah is larger than life, isn't it? Like in the whole story, it's like stranger than fiction. Everything that happens is sort of in this hyperbolic scale. It's all this hyperbole. And and that's, that's a literary device to sort of help us see this, help make a point. It's history. It really happened. But it's a scenario that's sort of just larger than life, right? Um... And if we weren't in a, in a global pandemic that none of us would have believed would have ever happened, it might be hard to believe this is actual history, but you know, the, who would have believed you know, one year ago today what we would have all been through, right? Sometimes history happens that's just stranger than fiction. And I think that's kind of a good way to think about this whole story of Jonah. It's this, this, this story that's just larger than life that helps us sort of stop and take notice. And so the plant is sort of one element of this, right? That God would bring this plant, it would grow up overnight, and then God would cause it to wither, leaving Jonah even more exasperated, more frustrated, more miserable than he was before. And then he he says again, I would rather die than live. But look what God is doing through this. We pick up in verse 9. But God said to Jonah, same question again, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Of course, indignant Jonah says, it is. And I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. Third time he said it. Third time, I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But look at what God is doing. The first time he says, is it right for you to be angry? Sort of left it hanging there. Presumably, he's asking about God, Jonah's anger at um, his compassion being given to the Ninevites, right? Are you, are you, is it right for you to be so angry that someone else got the good compassion that you feel entitled to? And this time he says, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Now what's interesting about this is I think it, it sort of highlights for us as we're, again, going beneath the surface a little bit deeper, another facet of Jonah's anger. Because Here comes some compassion toward Jonah that Jonah doesn't deserve, but then it gets taken away, right? Which is a little bit different. It's a little bit different when we have things that that are comforts to us and blessings to us, and then those things get taken away for one reason or another. I mean, that's that's another kind of anger, like, oh man, I I need that back. I want, I want something back that I had. And so here, here we have Jonah sort of um, experiencing another dimension of anger at what God is doing. And here we have God just probing in, again, the wonderful counselor. Is it right for you to be angry about this plant? And then watch what God says in verse 10. He says, Jonah, you have been concerned about this plant 
though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and died overnight. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. You didn't tend it. You didn't make it grow. You did nothing to cause this plant to come and give you comfort. And now you're so angry you could die because it was taken away. Is that right for you to be angry when something is taken away that you did nothing to bring to yourself? It's an interesting question, isn't it, from God? And he just puts his finger right on Jonah's heart. And he exposes what's really there beneath the surface. And of course, there's an invitation for us as well. Uh, So many of us right now have the very same complaint that Jonah had. I've had some good things in my life, things I like, things that are comfortable to me, things that I've gotten accustomed to. And lately, they've been taken away from me. And man, I am losing my mind over it. I want those things back. Did I do anything to deserve the blessings or to create the good situations that I've been living in? Nope. I just was born into it. So many of us, we've we've lived whatever way it is and, and our lives have been altered and man, we are ticked off about it. And God says, is it right for you to be angry when some of the comforts that you did nothing to deserve are taken away from you for a time? So God is probing. He's pushing beneath the surface. He's he's, he's making Jonah squirm. He's making me squirm right now. But that's not where he leaves it. And this is so great. The, The tail end of the book, right at the very end, the focus shifts from all of Jonah's situation, all of this story, and it comes to God. And it's as if God says, all right, we're done talking about you, Jonah. Now let's talk about me. And this is what God says. Verse 11. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? He ends this whole story with a question to Jonah. He says, Jonah, you've been so angry you want to die because of my compassion, but should I not have concern for the people in this great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left? And oh, by the way, there's a whole bunch of animals there as well. So we see some things about God's compassion Right here at the end of the story, the God who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, who relents from sending calamity, just as he told Moses, just as the people of Israel had been celebrating for centuries. This is my compassion, God says. And we see in this last verse, God has compassion for people. I mean, that's a simple phrase, right? But it's rich in this context. It's not just the people of Israel that God has compassion toward. God has compassion toward all people, even people who are the most undeserving in your mind or mine. And then he tells us why. He tells us why he had compassion on the people of Nineveh. He says they didn't know their right hand from their left. 
And this, once again, is a phrase that picks up on Israel's history. Uh, Could we have that verse from Deuteronomy uh, thrown up on the screen? This is instructions to the people of Israel about following the law of God, and it says this, do not turn aside from any of the commands I give you today to the right or to the left, following other gods and serving them. This, This refrain, do not turn away to the right or to the left, was a way of saying to the people of Israel, I've given you my law that gives you a path to run on. Don't turn away from it to the right or to the left. That would be a way of disobeying or straying away from God. But the gift that he had given to the Israelites is they knew the right from the left. They had the law to tell them. You know, King David celebrated. He said, you know, who is, who, what other nation has such a law as this that they would know how to please God and be in relationship with him? Interestingly, it wasn't just a reference uh, that would have been known uh, among the Israelites, but in the Babylonian culture at that time. The right hand and the left were sort of symbols for truth and justice. And I don't know if that's what, what God had in mind that he was communicating to Joseph or Joseph Jonah uh, in this context. But if it were, here we have a people that live in Nineveh that they don't have the law of God, that they would know the right from the left, And they're not even in a place that has truth and justice. It's sort of a a place where injustice is reigning, where truth is is compromised. And here are 125,000 plus people living in this place that is characterized by injustice. God had compassion on them because they were lost. And God says to Jonah, should I not have compassion toward these people who are lost? They don't know their right hand from their left. This is the heart of God. He has his love and grace and compassion for people who are lost. And how many times, if you're going beneath the surface and you're really reflecting, you just feel lost. Wandering frustrated, confused. Maybe you've made some choices that you know, I've, got, I've, I've taken a right turn or a left turn from what I know to be right. But God, in his heart of compassion, offers grace. Jesus Christ hung on a cross and said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. They don't know their right hand from their left. Who knew in the book of Jonah we have this window into the same compassion that Jesus spoke when he was giving his life out of compassion for you and for me, inviting us in to the forgiveness and grace of God. God has compassion for people, for you and for me. Thank God that he does. And then just one last note about the animals. So interesting, isn't it? The, the very last phrase in the whole book of Jonah says, oh, and there are a whole lot of animals there as well. And honestly, I don't quite know what to make of that, but it's interesting that animals figure really prominently in the story of Jonah. You got the fish, right? The whale, that's, I mean, it wouldn't be Jonah if it weren't Jonah and the whale, right? He's, he's the co-star. 
And then there's the little worm that eats the plant. God is using uh, these animals to, you know, bring this living parable to life. And then that got me thinking, animals figure really prominently in the story of the Bible. I mean, in the, in the opening chapters, you have Adam naming all of these animals in the Garden of Eden. And then in the whole sacrificial system, the way that God established for people to have a relationship with him was through detailed instructions about various kinds of animals for the sacrifices. Whenever anybody's wealth was described, it was described in terms of their animals and their livestock and the things that they had possessed. In Revelation, when we're looking forward to the eternal kingdom, you have the lion laying down with the lamb. Jesus himself is described as the lion and the lamb. Just a fascinating thing how God doesn't just have compassion for people. He has compassion for the animals, for all of his creation. And he's working through all of these things, all of these living parables. We read about one in Jonah, but our lives are filled with living parables. Episodes, stories, events, circumstances that God brings in order to teach us, in order to grow us, in order to take us below the surface, if we have eyes to see it, if we have a heart to reflect on it. And so that's where I want to leave us now with the conclusion of this Jonah series that, that we've, been, we've been invited to go beneath, beneath the surface, not just watch Jonah sink under the waves, but to consider what is it that God is saying to you and to me about his compassion. And he's inviting us to repent, just as the Ninevites were invited to repent, just as Jonah was invited to repent. We don't know for sure, but we think probably Jonah uh, wrote the book of Jonah. And we don't know why it ends so abruptly with this question just hanging out there where God says, should I not be concerned? Should I not have compassion? But if Jonah is the author and he ends it on this question, you could see that being an intentional way to stop. He says, this is what I had to wrestle with in my encounter with God. I had to learn God's compassion in order to repent and come to him, follow after him. I had to hear, Father, forgive me, for I did not know what I was doing. So I'll just invite all of us to sort of join in that posture as we close out this series, as we close out our service today, to cry out to God that we would know his compassion, respond to it with repentance of those deep seeds of anger that might live in our spirit when someone else gets the good cereal or when something that I've grown accustomed to is, is taken away for a time. Know that inside of those things is the compassion and grace of God calling us to go beneath the surface. So let's pray together. Lord God, thank you for this parable. Thank you for this story. Thank you for the life of Jonah that doesn't invite us to mock or scorn or feel better than, but invites us to consider that yes, you do have compassion for people, and that includes us, and that includes the people that we're angry at, and that includes the animals and the whole entire creation. Lord, help us to marvel and worship at your compassion, and help us to say yes when you give us an assignment to go and carry that compassion forward to a lost 
and dying world that does not know their right hand from their left. Use us, Lord, in whatever way you choose. In Jesus' name, amen.